Welcome to the 14th episode of the official Espigan podcast, hosted by Dr. Alex Nicely. And welcome everybody. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, wherever and whenever you are. This is Alex Nicely for Espigan. A podcast today I'm reporting in out of <laughs> Kermend in Hungary, and I'm speaking with Jake Mann in Birmingham, and the technical side of things is being handled, as always, in Graz, Austria. Jake, um, Jake's a difficult person to get a handle on, at least on paper. I'm used to being given CVs, curricula vitae, that run to 40 or 50 pages because the person has put down every time she crossed the street in order to present a case in another department. There's a lot of stuff to work with there. Jake, on the other hand, has a one-page CV, but that one page is as it's crammed as full as a subway car around five in the evening on the Shibuya line in Tokyo. I mean, you can't get any more into that page, which means that he has to leave some stuff out. And I'm going to go after some of the stuff that he left out. Jake, where are you from? So uh, originally I'm from a tiny island called Guernsey, which is uh, halfway in between England and France in the English Channel. Um, and technically it's not part of England or even the UK. It's it's a crown dependency um, and it's only 30 miles around the outside. So I'm an islander at heart and, and uh, sort of brought up by the sea where you could walk to all your friends' houses and rarely used a car. Right. The big question now is which are better, Guernsey or Jersey cattle? Well, I mean, <laughs> if you, it depends who you ask, but as a Guern, there, there is no question in it. Clearly, Guernsey. Yeah, you certainly are the first person I've met from Guernsey. But you didn't stay there. You went off to medical school, to university, and then to an advanced degree in medicine in Birmingham. And I was expecting a Birmingham accent. Now, I'm not Henry Higgins. I'm not able to say that you're speaking with this or that or a Guernsey accent, but Birmingham. Why Birmingham? So at the, at the time, if I'm being brutally honest, uh, I played a lot of badminton and... I thought that Birmingham was the university that had the best badminton team. So uh, that was really the main driver for why I wanted to go to Birmingham in the first place. Now, don't tell me that you left out of your CV your participation in the Olympics team. Uh, unfortunately, I didn't quite have that accolade to, uh, to add to the list. Um, I played a bit for the university, but um, moved on to other things since. Well, you, after taking all the prizes in Birmingham... I'm, I'm, I can't read them all out, folks. It's just too long a list. You went down to Cambridge. In other words, instead of electing a particular field of medicine at the time, you headed off to become a scientist. So I, uh, yeah, I wanted to move to Cambridge because at that point I thought I was, and still am, interested in metabolic disease in general uh, and I knew that the team in Cambridge had um, some of the best labs in the world and I thought that if I'm going to go and get science training then let's try and go somewhere where you know I, I'm being trained by people who are extremely experienced. So I went down to Cambridge and I did my core sort of pediatrics residency there and a PhD in um, sort of adipose biology and mitochondrial disease. 
it's an interesting it's an interesting feature of what I can find out about you on PubMed that there's nothing about mitofusin associated with man JP. Are all those papers? And they, that was the subject of your of your doctoral work, yeah? Yeah. So that's the that's the topic of my thesis, which um, we are working on those papers day by day, and uh, hopefully edging ever nearer to submission. But uh, uh, I'm sure, as you're familiar with, each time you think you're there, then um, you find that there's something else that could be improved upon. So we are it's closely like, there. Yeah, it's that gosh darn second reviewer, isn't it? There's hmm. always a second reviewer. And not, and having completed your PhD work, you went back to Birmingham, which means that you started working as a pediatric registrar, especially registrar in hepatology, hepatology gastroenterology, and that doesn't leave you a lot of time to work on papers. Yeah, that's right. So I uh, this this had been kind of my plan for a little while to move away and then and then come back to working on the liver unit in Birmingham. So I've only been there uh, six months, but uh, yeah, it, it now means that for working on papers and other research-related things, it, that's all evenings and weekends. Evenings and weekends, and a family. Absolutely. And well, a dog, and a dog. No, uh, no, dog. No, no, no dog at the moment. <laughs> okay. Life is not complete without a dog. Mm -hmm. So we come down now to the idea of an interest in metabolic disease, which of course takes you into pediatrics because pediatrics is where the uh, metabolic disorders, the severe metabolic disorders, the low-hanging fruit of metabolic disorders really crop up first, isn't it? Yeah, many of the, uh, both kind of on the inherited metabolic disease side, conditions tend to present in children. Uh, and then it, it almost becomes much more of a, my perception at least was that it was more of a day-to-day um, occurrence. You'd look after pa patients with rare inherited metabolic disease, even on the general pediatrics ward, uh, and you know hyperglycemia screens and and you know consideration for for these sorts of conditions seemed more common to me in pediatrics, and that was part of what led me down that route. Um, whilst also at the same time sort of cultivating an interest in liver biology. Great. I had the same experience, more or less, in that when I was in medical school, I thought during the intermediary metabolism lectures, I'm never going to need any of that stuff. I'm going to be a surgeon. <laughs> and then I wasn't a surgeon. I was a histopathologist. And if I didn't want to deal with people who died of atheromatous disease or who died because they fell under a bus, then I had to go to pediatric pathology. And mm -hmm. here I was having to relearn all the things to which I didn't pay adequate attention as a medical student. Ah. The places life takes you. So you've, let's move to the three articles that you thought are particularly worthwhile. One of them is titled, Weight Loss, Insulin Resistance, and Study Design Confound Results in a Meta-Analysis of Animal Models of Fatty Liver. First author, Hunter, and um, published in a journal with which I'm frankly not familiar, eLife. Then there's the global prevalence and genetic spectrum of lysosomal acid lipase deficiency, a rare condition that mimics non-alcoholic fatty liver disease, first author Carter, which appeared in Journal of Hepatology and has a, has a, is it a good twin or an evil twin? I always forget, has a twin involving Wilson disease in which you carried out a similar sort of analysis and came up with a very different set of conclusions. 
And then, now, if everybody, uh, are you writing this down? Because you're going to need a very long pencil. Variance in mitochondrial amidoxime reducing component 1 and hydroxysteroid 7-beta-hydrogenase, oh, got it wrong, 17-beta-dehydrogenase 13, reduce severity of non-alcoholic fatty liver disease in children and suppress fibrotic pathways through distinct mechanisms. Hudert et al., Hepatology Communications. Two of those are pure math. And the other one, or at least it seemed to me on reading them, the two of them were pure math. <laughs> and then meta-analyses, both the weight loss and the global prevalence work. And then the variance in mitochondrial amidoxime. <clears throat> I'm going to get this right if it kills me. Variance in mitochondrial amidoxime <laughs> is... It's genetic mining on a on a, a data engineering background. You're more of a mathematician than a biologist, aren't you? On paper, <laughs> yes, as it as it currently stands. Partly, um, I hopefully I'll slightly uh, alter that perception when I'm able to publish some of my wet lab PhD work. But uh-huh. whilst I was there um, in Cambridge, I learned a lot from the team in the epidemiology unit. Um, mm-hmm. And that sort of, well, I, I guess you could say I caught the bug of uh, data science and secondary data uh, analysis. And mm-hmm. um, that's part of what led to many of these studies. And then the network, which I've uh, sort of been working with in, in Espagan, is what led to the, the last paper by uh, the, Chris Houdet. Mm-hmm. Right. Let's, let's, let's have a bash at the lysosomal lipase deficiency work. Um, it's, you know, when I see a biopsy from a child with lysosomal, lysosomal acid lipase deficiency, what catches my eye is, is this a glycogenosis rather than is this non-alcoholic fatty liver disease? Hmm. And just because kids with glycogenosis tend to accumulate a good bit of fat in their liver, and then the key is always look for the Kupfer cells. If you've got big, chubby Kupfer cells, then it's probably not a glycogenosis, and you ought to start to think about LAL deficiency. So your argument on which the analysis is based is that people think that there's a lot of LAL deficiency out there in adults that's masquerading or misdiagnosed. I'm right hand up to God. I'm ready to accept misdiagnosis on the on behalf of my discipline, histopathology. But tell me more about uh, why this was a good project for you. I I, I suppose I liked this project because it was uh, conceptually very straightforward, and we were aiming to answer a, a single question in a a single way, uh, and hopefully that would lead to a an answer that had um, some sort of clinical implication. Um, and also it was a piece of work done in evenings and weekends and therefore it it had to be something that was straightforward um, but hopefully also made a useful contribution so as you say the the idea was that would be trying to address the question of is lipase deficiency in its uh, all its various guises is it about as rare as we think it is or is it much more common than we think it is um, or and on that basis, are we likely or not to be misdiagnosing many cases of potential LALDI as uh, fatty liver disease? 
So what were the techniques that you used to crack that nut? So the main technique was uh, one that I'd seen used in a paper, which I think was on hereditary hemochromatosis, where uh, they used um, population level genetics databases, the, the NOMAD database, though I think at that time it was the EXACT database. Um, and they essentially took a, a list of every variant that had ever been well established with, for their case, it was hereditary hemochromatosis, but for us, it was LALD. Mm -hmm. So we came up with a long list of variants. And then we basically just looked up in this population level data, what is the estimated prevalence of each of those variants, added it all together, use the Hardy-Weinberg equation, and then you pop out with an overall estimated prevalence. Now, clearly, lots of those variants were um, so rare that they weren't captured in a population level database. Um, so you would assume that their prevalence is so low, it's, you know, can be uh, disregarded. Yeah, would be disregarded. Um, but there are there are several variants which are common in the um, uh, heterozygous state, which clearly wouldn't cause the uh, full uh, monogenic disorder. But that allows you to therefore calculate what the overall prevalence would be. And where did you get your data from on how on the actual or the at the time being diagnosed prevalence of LALD? So the uh, we we did a. Um, I'm, I'm saying you've got a predicted. This this gives you yeah. a route a route to prediction, hmm. but what are you comparing it against? So we were comparing it against um, a uh, a the previous all the previous estimates based on sort of clinical diagnoses, okay. um, of which the majority are case series where they you know mm -hmm, for mm -hmm, example mm -hmm. have studied all the case series in you know a certain country with a well-defined um, method for capture of these diagnoses and then they take it well, the, the over the total population or over unit time right, and then right. they come up with a, a prevalence and that that itself was highly variable but gave us a benchmark to work against and what did you find so the the essence was in one sense not very surprising that uh, LALD is a very rare condition um, and it is probably about as rare as we thought it was um, but the implication of that is that it, it was not much more common than we thought it was and therefore it is probably unlikely that in the general population in your general fatty liver clinic that you are missing uh, a substantial number of cases. So that's one more lab test you don't need to send? In theory, but you know, in the world of pediatrics, it's hard to say never, never say never, um, because uh, if you never test for it, you would never diagnose it. So we did make some suggestion over at what point you should consider do it, sending sending that assay, um, the sorts of cases. But it would be much more a kind of third line investigation rather than even you know second or first line. Gotcha. Well, let's. If you say A, you have to say B. And having said LALD, I have to say WD, Wilson disease, which is the um, the counterpart, the the good or evil twin, whichever. Crack us through that one, huh? So uh, conceptually, exactly the same methodology, um, except uh, much much bigger. Um, so the the idea being 
We don't truly know the overall prevalence of Wilson disease. And again, in certain island states or communities, there may be a very high prevalence and that can skew the overall estimates. So again, we, we looked at kind of clinical epidemiological estimates for the prevalence of Wilson disease. And then we did this genetic method. Mm-hmm. The difficulty, it, one sense of difficulty, difficulty really in terms of time, was that there are you know well over 700 variants that have ever been described to be associated with Wilson disease. So we spent a long time tabulating those. Um, but the, the essence was almost the opposite from the previous paper, where we found a prevalence estimate that was substantially higher based on genetics than the clinical um, estimate. Right. So here we have, again, it, it all comes back to a kid who shows up in your clinic with elevated ele- elevated biomarkers and with a sonogram that suggests fatty change. And now the question is, do you work that kid up for LAL deficiency? Do you work that kid up for Wilson disease? Um, now, but you came up with a very different response with regard to Wilson disease. Yes. Tell us so, about that. So I suppose the the take home, I think there's two points, two important points for Wilson disease. Firstly, um, it is a, you know, chronic debilitating neurological condition with where in general, there's minimal reversibility of neurological sequelae. Mm-hmm. And it has a specific treatment. So missing a diagnosis is terrible. Yeah. Um, Clearly, there is also a treatment for LALD, um, uh, but the, given the rarity, I think the situation is a little bit different. So I think that everyone would agree that missing a case of Wilson disease in a patient with fatty liver would be uh, absolutely terrible. The The other kind of take-home point is more conceptual about uh, Wilson disease, and our impression was, and speaking to other colleagues, was that the prevalence estimate we had was so high that we didn't think that we'd be missing that many clinical cases of Wilson disease um, if our genetic prevalence estimate were true. Mm-hmm. And therefore, there must be people who genetically have Wilson disease, but phenotypically uh, do not manifest any features of it. Well, have you come up with a, a hit list of variants that exhibit little or no clinical penetrance? So unfortunately, we weren't able to sort of tap into that level of detail using the method that we have done. Other people have kind of specifically looked at variants and tested their activity or their influence on the ATP7B levels. Um, We are just able to make a kind of much more broad statement of there will be some variants that have incomplete penetrance and or there are other factors involved in manifestations of either the hepatic or the neurological complications. Right, which again means that just squeezing the cells, looking at the juice and coming up with an ATP7B variant is not yet enough to predict clinical disease. Yes, and I guess the one of the practical points that we suggested is that perhaps isn't that surprising, but um, you would want good a good starting point to uh, request Wilson disease genetics. So if you had already abnormal liver enzymes, evidence of fatty change on ultrasound, then if you have abnormal Wilson 
disease genetics, then that, that may be consistent. But if you took a healthy person off the street and then found them to have certain homozygous variants, then you cannot necessarily say that they will go on to develop the full clinical picture. Gotcha. Okay, thank you. That's. <laughs> I liked listening to you and watching you uh, work your way through that. Let's go back to, I'm going to open up another document on my worksheet. Oh, not there, not there. Here, where we go. Because I haven't internalized the, uh, there we go. Well, that, now we come to weight loss, insulin resistance, and study design confound results, which is, what did I take away from that? I took away from that the idea that um, we're wasting a lot of animals. Yeah, I think that's a fair assessment. How can we do animal studies better? Animal studies in fatty liver disease and in the pharmacogenetics, pharmacogenomics of fatty liver disease. So I'm not going to say anything new for anyone who works in the sort of field of reproducibility within science. Um, and it's all boring stuff about suitable numbers to to make sure you're going to hit your, your power targets, identification of primary outcomes before you start, randomization, blinding, and then looking out for specific confounders. And the main one that we found was that in animal studies of fatty liver, if you test, you know, drug X against animals with fatty liver, if that causes weight loss because these mice are getting sick, um, because they just don't like the drug, then they may well be losing fat from their liver, but that's because they're not eating so much because they're sick. Uh-huh, uh-huh. And what about, the sh what about the blood sugar, the insulin resistance business? So I think that, again, this was sort of simple conclusions that if you lose weight, then you generally alleviate insulin resistance, and mm -hmm. insulin resistance is overwhelmingly the main driver of hepatic steatosis in, in all its guises. Um, so the, the whole process seemed to be one, you know, all, all in one go, but the, the kind of clincher for the evidence was that there were drugs that we were seeing that had been used in multiple studies in, in animals, um, which consistently caused weight loss in animals. And we know that if you use those drugs in humans, they do not cause weight loss. And if they don't cause weight loss, then they also don't lead to clinical improvement in NAFLD. Unless they're acting via a different mechanism, of course, yeah. Uh, okay, thank you for bringing that up. Yeah. Okay, yeah. all right. Well, that's, we are feeling a bit pressed for time. And now we have to move on to the, I hate to seem this way, but to the, to the article with the unpronounceable names and the mitochondrial disease. <laughs> I know, I'd just like to have you read the article title aloud, see how you deal with it. <laughs> Oh, we, we just tend to call it the Mark One paper. Um, that's uh, just just avoid trying to pronounce uh, any of the gene names. I feel better now. Thank you for that. So, leaving leaving the gene names aside, what did you find? So we started out with the basic question of: Is uh, the genetics of fatty liver disease in children similar to that in adults? And there have been several recent studies that have found common variants in either this gene Mark 1, renamed MTARC1, but it's easy to call it Mark 1, hope you don't mind, and HSD17 beta 13, um, or HSD for short. 
so much easier. Exactly. Variants in those genes were associated with reduced risk of uh, fatty liver-associated cirrhosis in adults. So we wanted to see, does the same happen in children? A protective effect in effect. A protective effect in effect. Exactly. And you know, clearly that's very interesting from both a biological perspective and also as a, as a potential pharmacological target. Aha. Aha. So have you ordered your yacht yet? <laughs> Unfortunately, not, 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 so, not so much. Um, if we were the ones to make the discovery, then perhaps. Okay. So again, this was a meta-analysis, wasn't it? So this was uh, no, this was um, original data, but we pooled data oh, okay. from uh, from many Multi people Institute. who helped out. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. okay. Yeah. So we, we we sort of utilized this network that we've been establishing in in Espagan, uh, and a large number of people contributed DNA and data, um, and essentially we found that these variants do have a risk reducing effect in children. Um, but it is probably more subtle than in adults. And I expect that part of the reason for that is that children generally have less advanced fatty liver in the first place. Mm -hmm. So the kind of delta for reduction of severity is smaller. Less time for them to develop severe disease, is that it? Mm, yes, oh. and we only have a small proportion of our cohort who have severe disease. So we're already talking about smaller power in order to establish an effect size. But these two variants on which you published act in different ways. Yes. So one is uh, a lipid droplet associated protein where we don't know exactly what it does, but it certainly modifies how the liver handles triglycerides and probably also how it handles retinol. Um, whereas the other one, uh, Mark 1, as far as we understand, there is no clear mechanism for how that actually implicates on hepatic lipid metabolism. It's a, it's been known to have a kind of a detoxifying effect in mitochondria, um, but I'm sure that there are some some very clever people working very hard to try and understand what it does. Uh, Jake, I could keep chit-chatting with you about this and about your other work for a lot longer. Um, I, I have so much ignorance to expose. We, we could just go on. <laughs> but what are you? What are your plans for an NAFLD clinic in Birmingham? So the there is already uh, and has been for quite a long time a well-established NAFLD clinic in Birmingham. Um, which is run by uh, Dr. Van Morak and Dr. Johansson. So sure, sure. currently, I'm uh, a junior trainee uh, there, and um, so they're, they're the ones who run the clinic. Um, and, I'm thinking about but, the clinic as a source of material for your investigation. I see. So at this stage, uh, it may sound like, you know, as a network, we're already quite far on, but really we're still trying to establish what are the key questions to answer. Mm -hmm. uh, and some of those questions we, we think are important are, what do patients and families want us to work on? Ho, 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 ho. Um, what are you coming want... up with for that one? Sorry? What are you coming up with for that one? Well, how to make it better and, and beyond that? Well, I, th I think that we, we, so one, we want to kind of formally establish, you know, do they want more interventions around weight loss? Would they like special diet type treatments? Would they like a peer support network? And I think that when we have that sort of data that we could then try to impl implement those sort of practical measures to, to directly benefit our patients.
Okay. Keep From a more there. scientific perspective, huh? um, we really want to help uh, understand what the best non-invasive tools are for stratifying risk for severe fatty liver disease, um, whether that be Fibroscan or MRI. And so that I hope that in Birmingham, we can contribute to that effort as part of a kind of European network and everyone pooling the various data that they have together. Well, that that comes back again and, or down again to what SPGAN is all about. It's about sharing across national and cultural borders and barriers and putting heads together and, in, and observations together to make things better for us all. Now, you've done that without, so far as I can see, ever crossing the channel. Or did you ever make it to France? Um, only from a holiday perspective. Uh, I would love to come and work over in, uh, over in con the proper continental Europe at some stage. And here you are, you probably spoke, uh, is it Gerrier or Etron? Uh, unfortunately not. Um, all the road names are in France, uh, you know, Le La de Free, but uh, unfortunately everyone just speaks English. <laughs> okay, got that. Now, I was... And Birmingham. Birmingham. Uh, Britain's second city, or at least England's second city. Now we come to the question that we ask at the end of all of these uh, interviews, but, but before that... I want to say we now have a mechanism in place, ladies and gentlemen, through which, by sending an email to office at espigan.com, you can give feedback on these podcasts and can tell me in particular exactly how rubbish I am and what I should be doing differently. I'm, I'm braced, I'm ready, so get to those keyboards. And now... The song. I was trying to think of songs that involve Birmingham. There's that old music hall number of, uh, Oh, Mr. Porter, what shall I do? They've put, I want to go to Birmingham, and they've taken me up to crew. Now, that's a... Or, or we could go to... There's Panic in the Streets of London. There's Panic in the Streets of Birmingham, which is a bit more contemporary. Morrissey and the Smiths. What's your song? Unfortunately, it's not directly Birmingham-themed, but Birmingham does have a uh, a strong history of kind of underground techno house music. And mm -hmm. one of the main sort of leaders of the British movement over the last 20 years would be Fatboy Slim. Uh -huh. uh, and so my song would be Praise You by Fatboy Slim, which uh, I, I hope is uh, mainstream enough to be appreciated by many of the people who'd be listening. I reckon it will be.
If you would like to listen to the song in full length, please check out our SBGAN playlist. Jake, this has been a real pleasure and thank you so much. Thanks very much.